Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who has actually seen Einstein's penis. <laughs> okay, I haven't, but fun fact, I have seen his brain. Was it in a jar labeled Abbey Normal? No, it was a series of slides, I believe, actually. Okay. Last September, I went to the Muter Museum, um, oh, okay. the, the medical museum in Philadelphia. Um, and interestingly enough, the Muter Museum is now having uh officially having a reckoning that i was surprised had not happened yet when i visited last year are they coming to terms Which with some, is, some ill-appropriated goods presumably or they not? are having a serious conversation about what consent means when you are a museum full of dead people's things that you did not get consent for right such as your wall of skulls where a good 10 percent of them are just labeled prisoner yeah, well, as their, as their origin, <laughs> I was I was assuming when you one when when you one considers where most of the like for example the University of Chicago's bone closet comes from yeah. and stuff like oh, that yeah. that like a fairly help uh, a fairly large handful of these are going to be from native from Native Americans who right. never consented from yeah. from African Americans who never consented. And we're just not even considered worth asking or even like. Yeah. Well, you know, where where this does come back around is that Einstein's brain was just stolen. Oh, cool. Uh, so he's in the Einstein. He's in the list of people who did not give consent for for their Einstein, things to be there. Einstein's brain is in the Muter Museum without Einstein's consent. That's certainly that's bad. This is bad. Uh, I don't like and, this place. And not only. Not only did someone exhume Einstein's brain out of his body, exhume's not the right word there anyway, but uh, um, without Einstein's consent, they just then left it in a closet for, for like years. People are fucking weird, uh, man. Like, yeah, human yeah. beings sometimes are the weirdest motherfuckers, I swear. Like, why? Why? I mean, like, I know why, but like, Why? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I understand the thought process they went through. I just don't understand why they went through that thought that thought process. Yeah, the guy who did his autopsy stole his brain. Oh, even better. Um, even so, so a person violated every known form of medical ethics. Yeah, to fucking abscond uh, with Einstein's is, brain and then leave it in his fucking closet. Having now looked it up, uh, Wikipedia does claim that there is a matter of dispute whether or not. Einstein gave prior consent. I I'm gonna bet that there uh, is no. I, that sounds to me like somebody made some shit up to cover their ass. Post hoc, Hans Albert Einstein, uh, Einstein's second child uh, and first son, uh, endorsed the fact that well, do, <laughs> his father's brain. Had been do removed. you think he was paid some sum of money to ignore the fact that an illegal I, act had taken place? Um, the other thing about the Einstein brain display at the Muter Museum that I found very funny. Uh, first off, it's only like 46 sections of his brain, I think, is the number. So where are the um, rest? So it's, it's a bunch of slides. I don't know where the rest of Einstein's brain is, but the Muter Museum's display of Einstein's brain is in like a freestanding closet. Okay. Um, like a like a big like cedar closet sort of thing, uh-huh. and there's a light bulb uh, that was burnt out that is supposed to illuminate the display. The Muner Museum has not sprung for fucking LED lights. Well, they're they're spending all of their energy arguing about whether or not they should ethically exist. So right, 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 right. I feel uh, like I feel like 
groups like that, I feel like something as low as like kind of like low like quality as Mooner Museum should like just let like the University of Chicago and fucking like Harvard and Princeton wage these wars and then just sort of they should just give up and give theirs back. But then I guess they wouldn't be a museum Maybe. anymore. They wouldn't have anything because oh yeah, we stole right. all of this shit. This is one hundred percent stolen. Fuck. What are we gonna do? All we got is this Einstein brain that was retroactively endorsed. I'm glad uh, you went there, Adam. I'm glad. I'm glad you gave the buddy. Now, some some amount of what they have is donated or given by someone who expected this body part to be on display. Here's my thing, though, Adam. Their track record seems to make me un- like uncomfortably dubious about the level of actual consent that even existed there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. If a certain no, if a person commits like. 700 cases of fraud and has one contract that's not fraudulent. I want to be very suspicious of that. We don't need a 15-minute cold open on the Muter Museum, so let's move on. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Uh, We do a non-criterion film over there each month. Uh, Supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch from a list usually that I put together. Uh, Sometimes that supporters themselves suggest. So we got a pretty eclectic mix of movies over there. Never as eclectic as the actual Criterion Collection because that's impossible. how do you get more eclectic than infinitely eclectic? Uh, well, actually, technically yeah, speaking, just, um, you can have infinite plus one, and you can also well, square, cube, and uh, add uh, ad nauseum infinity. So, yeah. I mean, well, essentially... I'm just saying. So, criterion, criterion in deciding what they're going to put out has an infinite list, right? Right. Because there's enough movies that it might as well be. Well, and line line must go up, so... Yeah. Whereas we are limited to movies that Criterion hasn't released. Which is infinity minus one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, by its very nature, uh, we are less eclectic yeah we are we are penultimate infinity i i like it i yes i like sitting there right on the cusp yeah right right we sit on the cusp of infinity overlooking the dark abyss and uh talk about movies and that's our life yeah i mean our life is what we do when you actually if you spend a little bit too much time thinking about what we do it gets very very dark yes indeed ah so we punctuate that darkness by talking about fun movies and bad movies and good movies and just whatever movie whatever. our supporters vote on. <laughs> and, and yeah, so and you know, thinking about it too hard, things like that. Yeah, we're good at it. We love thinking about movies too much. We think about we're everything too hard. Now. I like to think we're good at. It. I mean, we we anyway. certainly do um, think too hard. I mean, we are successful at yes. doing that. Yes. <laughs> that dollar a month also gets you access to all the back catalog there's 71 episodes over there right now um yeah we've watched some really great movies from critters 2 to uh star wars empire strikes back i never know what's gonna follow critters 2 i always expect you i always expect the critters 2 i never know what you will choose as the 
the opposing force to Critters 2. I love about that one more remark. At $5, we like to thank our supporters at that level, folks who can help keep us going a little bit stronger. Thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Chris Otto. Yes, thank you. Above that, we do something kind of special. That, that $10 and above mark. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note, and send that off. So if you like bespoke mail, if you like bespoke art, we do like to thank those $10 and above supporters on air. So thank you so much to Tracy McGrath, Nina Bajnak, Jason Westhaber, Adam Speakerman, and Patrick Yucko, our current $10 and above supporters. Yes, thank you. If you want to see those postcards without being part of that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. All our past postcards will come up. You can search for them and buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, as buttons, some of them, as stickers. Good collection of stuff. I want to see if we can get... Oh, do you think they have like temporary tattoos? That would be fun. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. We could probably find a place that would print us temporary tattoos, but that's not not something Redbubble does. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything off that Redbubble. Thank you so much to everybody who's ever supported us on our Patreon. And thank you for listening. Yes, thank you so much. Pat, this week we're talking about Insignificance from 1985, directed by Nicholas Rogue. This is, I think, our fourth Nicholas Rogue movie. So we've watched uh, Walkabout was our first one way okay. back uh, at Spine Number 10. Uh, that's the one about the kids lost in uh, the Australian Yeah, I actually still, re- like, I don't know, I can't claim that I remember yeah. it, like, you know, because it's been a million years, but uh, I do, you know, pretty yeah. much remember it. Yeah. And then we watched uh, Bad Timing uh, at Spine 303. That one one was one we didn't really like. Art Garfunkel is in that one, and it is... Oh, uh, right. That's when we talked about the fact that... He murders his girlfriend. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I did not like that one. And also, it made me realize just the fact that, like, you know, a thing that I had subconsciously known, which is the fact that Art Garfunkel has always been 45 years old. Yes. From birth, probably. Uh, and, And then immediately after... Bad time when you watch The Man Who Fell to Earth. Right, uh, which the, I, I like uh, very much. Uh, the Bowie movie that we liked very yeah, much. Yeah, we both enjoyed it and, and has yeah. only grown on me since watching it. I, I think yeah. about it more and more all the time. Yeah. Now, Bad Timing uh, co-starred uh, Teresa Russell, who co-stars in this week's movie as well, playing the actress uh, who is Marilyn Monroe, but not in name. Um also in this movie, Michael Emmel, who we've never seen in a film, but weirdly enough, is the older brother of Henry Jaglum, who is the writer-director of A Safe Place, the very weird uh, one with Orson Welles out of the BBS box set, uh, one of the highlights of the oh, BBS right, box right. set, as far as I'm concerned. Emmel very rarely seems to have acted outside of projects his brother was not directly involved with, with... with this being one of the notable exceptions. Um, and then Tony Curtis also in here as uh, as a Joseph McCarthy, um, who we've obviously, we saw Well, very I recently mean, he, is he supposed, I, I, one of the things that confused me about this, and this is just me being, maybe being dumb, I was unclear if he was Joseph McCarthy or he was just a shithead senator. Who like because <laughs> I, I suppose that's... No, the reason I, I know those since, are basically the same everyone thing. everyone is just credited as... Yeah. The reason I say that is that Everyone at some is just point, as the whatever they are, yeah. He says, 
Like at some point he says something like, you know, have already been brought before like so and so and so and so have already been brought before the McCarthy hearings or something like that after when he mentioned yeah. like Oppenheimer. And it's like which made it sound like it was like dissociative. It wasn't like my hearings. It was yeah. the, you know what I mean? So I was unclear if he was actually supposed to be that person or he was supposed to be um just like I mean, an even more is, unimportant person. He is supposed to be McCarthy. Okay. Um that is one thing one thing about the characterization here, and this is true for our, our fourth lead, who is uh uh Gary Busey is Joe DiMaggio, uh then Marilyn Monroe's husband. Everybody's well, then, then no being whatever made-up time these people all yeah. met, apparently 1954, um, but didn't happen. Right. Everybody's playing a, a not non-stereotypical interpretation of who they're being, right? Um, Russell is made up to look like Marilyn Monroe to a certain extent. Uh, Emil made up to look like Albert Einstein to a certain extent, though I, I found Emil's choice to not do the stereotypical... Einstein never lost his German accent, right? Uh, but Emil is doing it in a very like Woody Allen, right. New York Jew. Yeah, I mean his, uh, and it was it was pretty off putting to me. I I, I also found it the way I found it like it felt too much like I don't, his felt more comedic than everybody else's. Yeah, which was yeah. which was weird. Yeah, and then. Um, <laughs> Gary Busey is Joe DiMaggio. I don't know anything stereotypical about Joe DiMaggio, so Gary Busey can do whatever he wants. Uh, I, with, I, with Tony Curtis and Joseph McCarthy, it was really was just the flop sweat. It was just right. <laughs> it was that's the whole costume, just the flop. Yeah, sweat. yeah. And and to that extent, he could be Nixon. Right, right. Uh, he could be but, any uh, politician that predates yeah. live television, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like no, it's um. The Joe DiMaggio thing is like it seems pretty on my. I have this recollection, and I could be wildly wrong. I have this recollection of hearing that Joe DiMaggio was a very violent man. Um, yeah, and so in that case, one might argue that Gary Busey's portrayal of Joe DiMaggio is right on the money in, in terms of it is yeah. just the thing he was. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah, none of them are especially made up to look like the person. No, they're not like they're not with, in like a bajillion pounds of makeup or within reason, like, or anything yeah. like that. Though, though, incidentally, one of the behind the scenes things does show uh, Emil in quite quite a lot of prosthetic. Yeah, they are the actually. I think they're all getting a lot natural. of aging makeup and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, what they're doing is they're putting they're doing yeah. face casting and then they're so they can put the prosthetics right. Like it's going to be like really. Right, it's presumably. mostly just like it. It is the professional version of what happens if you put Elmer's glue all over your face and hands. Uh. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did find the portrayal of Einstein um, well, to be. It had a bit of a sort of stereotypical Jew thing going on that felt a little like. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, was... I mean, very particularly that that New York Jewish nebbish sort of. Yeah, like I said, Woody it's not what you uh, and not what you knew I or anybody else would imagine when we think of Einstein, right? Like it's just not. Yeah, and of course, your, your mental image of of him. course Einstein was Jewish, right? Uh, but but also a person but who spoke with, him, as you mentioned, stereotypically a like that is thick very weird. German yeah. accent for his entire life. 
Right. Absolutely refused to give up his German accent. Um, which I imagine was a political choice. I think so. No, I, I, yeah, to not, I, to not lose his accent. Who knows if he had, you know, I'm sure if he had turned his mind to it, he could have, but like he didn't yeah. want to as far as I can, I understand. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, these four people, uh, all end up in Einstein's hotel room over the course of the night. Um, this is based on a play by Terry Johnson, um, which only takes place. It's a very compartmentalized play. Um, and it only takes place within the hotel room. You know, they kind of talked about that in the behind the scenes stuff, the idea that like, well, you know, yeah. The film offers you this sort of wider range of, of you know, you can show yeah, flashbacks. Yeah. Able to. And I'm always a little bit like, I'm never sure. Like, this is this is good, but I, I never feel like I know if it was a good or a bad thing to, like, fuck with the original. Expand. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, because, like, I've also, we have enjoyed, not always, but we have enjoyed in the past true sort of, like, parlor room films right that yeah really can can find themselves it's like you know it's like well this could have been one of those maybe you know i don't know that it would have been successful i don't know that it you know that that's what they should have done that was better or something like that it's just like oh oh we missed a chance i think i think generally speaking the flashbacks to the actress's background help Right, uh, Einstein to a lesser extent, um, DiMaggio to an even lesser extent. Yeah, DiMaggio's don't actually make senator. a lot of sense to me, honestly speaking. But <laughs> the the senator absolutely the lowest the lowest level there, with the possible exception that there is the smiling priest. I wasn't sure if the smiling priest was meant to imply. Oh, I think it's clergy sexual yes, abuse. I, I'm sure that it is. I uh, I, I refuse to or, accept that it doesn't. Yeah. Or the uh, the alternative interpretation there being just to dichotomize what the senator is today versus his childhood as a literal choir boy. Well, um, yeah, and the, but yeah, I see what you're saying. But, I I mean, there is sort yeah. of implication that like all of these organizations share the same sort of like nastiness right beneath the surface. Yes. That like even if you you know that like we we even if that's not exactly if they're not trying to imply that he was sexually abused we are showing a real creepy right. priest which sort of like right, right, where right, right. we all know that like even if he even if it's if that's not what's happening in this story we can all like oh so like the guy who is gr- who grew up in the organization with the fucked up creepy underbelly also yeah. ha- runs an organization participates in a currently in an organization and has a creepy fucked up underbelly you know what i mean Right, right, it's, right. It's parallel. Yeah, it's at least 100%. parallel, if nothing else. Yeah, um, and the senator's implied obsession with Monroe to the point where he hires a prostitute who looks like her, and assumes that she is a prostitute that looks like her. Uh, well, and also, and also is like he, bothered by the fact, like, like really has like a jarring experience when he discovers that the prostitute looks like her doesn't look like her because right. it's a wig because, doesn't really look you know, like her yeah yes and then this sense of jealousy that einstein was able to find a prostitute that looks more like her right, right. uh 
and very quickly running away when Joe DiMaggio shows up and he realizes what he's done. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, actually kind of a little disappointed that this imagined world of 1954 did not have Joe DiMaggio be a little violent. To I, I would have really, I, yeah, me I too. I could have gone for it. I, 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 I would have enjoyed just like, I mean, it's already a made up universe. You could just have Joe DiMaggio beat the fuck out of jo- uh, Joseph McCarthy. I'm okay with that. Um, so, one punch. Now it would have, I mean, it presumably if, would have only been one punch because... I mean, because well, he's Joe DiMaggio. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, precisely. Um, now, I think uh, I think storyline wise, that would have left open. Um, it would felt it would have felt worse that uh, this is the dissolution of their marriage. If if he had no no I done something that could be interpreted as defending her right right I, no in I agree that moment. in general that it would have it would have actually fucked up the ending of the movie completely in a lot of yeah, ways but it really would have uh, it's just that, they like, made the right choice it would have been satisfying to see yeah it just would have on a very like minor level we would have just enjoyed watching Joseph McCarthy get the fuck uh, the shit kicked out of him but that's you know <laughs> right right right. I mean, you and I, I uh, mean, like anybody at any time could just write a movie where that happens. So, yeah, this is a this is a call yeah, to but the I don't universe. Have, I don't have Nicholas Rogue money. So this is true. I'm just saying I don't know if people, Nicholas Rogue had Nicholas Rogue money in 1985. Honestly, I'm but, just saying people um, <laughs> in general. This is a call to all of you. You know, yeah, feel free to write that movie where, you know, you I, you figure out the plot. It doesn't matter what the plot is. It only has right. one key component. So, um, the play this was based off of, basically, the producer saw it, Rogue had seen it, uh, Teresa Russell had seen it, um, Gary Busey, notably in one of the bonus features, says he hadn't heard of it. Uh, right. Just, I don't know. Gary Busey, Gary Busey, for all of his faults, uh, in that he, he plays a lot of just dumb brutish characters over the course of his career, right? Uh, and seems like kind of a dimwit in real life. I've seen him act fantastically in some roles. He he can be very, very good. And he loses himself here, too, I think, very well. Um, he's not a bad actor. Uh, he is, I think, his, his stint as reality star <laughs> flavors him as... as something well maybe he isn't and and a weird thing about that is joke in the early 2000s right and the weird thing about that sort of stuff is that um you know you can sort of retroactively poison your your sort of your your career in a lot of ways right like where you yeah you know like you and i now have that association that like people at the time this movie came out would not necessarily have had right 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 according to terry or rather according to Teresa russell uh, she was approached to be in the movie before Rogue was attached. She says Rogue will probably dispute that because he lives outside of time. Right. <laughs> Basically. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, she said she was hesitant to do it as well. One, because the playwright, uh, Terry Johnson, um, wanted uh, the star, the woman who had played the actress in the play to be in the movie. Right. Right. Um, and two, she Russell herself was very, 
uh, reticent to play a Marilyn Monroe type in 1985 uh, because Marilyn Monroe was really in the zeitgeist in 85. We're talking Madonna in her Marilyn Monroe period, basically. Right, right. Um, uh, and yeah, she she brings that up as a reason she was well, to do even it. in the but then Rogue, oh, go ahead. Rogue signed on and and she confirmed. You know, she she decided to be to be in it. It's but, interesting because like they the um even in the in the sort of special features, she seems kind of hesitant to want to talk about the role in a way that the other actors yeah. aren't. I I don't know. It's like. It kind of makes me think that even because you know the, I don't get the impression this was made very much, very later, m- there that much later after the film. I mean, it was actually made during the shooting, right? But oh, almost certainly. No, yeah. I mean they actually. I just remember that there's a thing at the beginning like this was made during the shooting of the. So, um, I uh, I mean like my point being though that sort of my sort of mental takeaway is that like you can sort of maybe even still detect that reticence to like. Certainly, she committed to playing the character well in the movie. It's not like she was like hedging her bets there, but like there still seems to be a sort of reticence to talk about it sort of maybe on the grounds that like she doesn't want to like be too into it in the, uh, in the, in the sort of extra features sort of territory. Um, Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's just when they were interviewing her, she seemed, I don't know. She just seemed hesitant to like say a lot about, playing that character compared to yeah you know uh you know compared to some of the other actors yeah certainly uh everyone else sort of understood what they were doing in in the behind the scenes well and that's i know and i my guess Uh, is my and committed to it right that she didn't right she definitely understood and i think she understood enough to know that like she would undo she the things she was worried about she could still make happen by having a lot of yeah. very like intent like talking about the role too sort of flowery or intensely you know what I mean and sounding right. like she was maybe too into it or something like that. Um, Tony Curtis, yeah, I don't know. Certainly the flip enjoyed side. talking about his role. Uh, so yeah, the flip side of that is maybe almost like she has a sort of disdain for. Monroe. I think it could come off that. I, I well, the thing yeah. is, is that like things develop weird associations, right? Like so, Marilyn Monroe at this time is associated with with Madonna, and yeah. and by being associated with Madonna has a sort of um kind of pale cast upon it upon her at the time. You know what I mean? Like because yeah. Madonna, you know, there's an image of what Madonna represents at this time. And that gets directly translated into an image of what Marilyn Monroe re- represents at the time, right? And you're playing I think that's a fair. different version of Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe than than what sort of Madonna's playing. But that doesn't change the fact that, like, that association is going to, like, could glom onto you really, really hard, right? And, like, actors sort of, in a weird way, have to, you know, have to watch out for that sort of stuff, right? Especially if they're smart, right? Because... Um, just think about like the sort, you know, we, we kind of, people joke and, and get all into this whole like cancel culture thing recently, but like we, 
like it's not like a new thing to like you can just like accidentally find yourself on like everybody's shit list for sort of like yeah a character you played well or... that actually that that brings us to something Rogue said in the run up to this movie uh, in a 1983 interview uh, with Harlan Kennedy Rogue said it's describing the nature of making film at the time he says it's a very reactionary time right socially politically and artistically especially in the movies As we're talking you know rogues british so he's he's been in thatcher england for a while now uh in as much as this movie is an american production uh he's working in reagan's america which is, I, it is, is the same very place as reactionary yeah. time <laughs> yeah yeah uh and has and, been essentially know, remained a, a very reactionary place per, pretty much in perpetuity since then, right? Like, Right, 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 it, right. It, is just, it is very yeah. easy to associate yourself with something. Like, I, and, you know, I'm not trying to, like, kind of argue the cancel culture in the way that, like, a bunch of fucking weirdos on Twitter talk about it is real. But, like, an actor playing a character that is not... Uh, that, an actor playing a character that has negative associations with them can sort of follow them around for like a really long time. Uh, and then suddenly they become the person who played Madonna or played uh, Marilyn Monroe. So they're associated with Madonna. So now they're only allowed to play one kind of woman now, essentially, or something right. like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's also. It's not that, obviously, we didn't call it cancel culture, but, like, we just talked recently about uh, about Kess and about how, uh, about how Ken Loach in the 80s basically had you know, kept producing documentaries for BBC that got blacklisted. Right. I mean, right. you could there. We had a term for it before when it yeah. was like in the way that it functioned back then. It's called being blackballed, right? Like you could just be right persona non grata in your own field, right? Yeah. Um, if you did, and given that the nature against, of this movie, yeah. Rogue, if Rogue had pushed a little more, he could have been blackballed in the same way, right? Um, his career does take. A sort of downturn, uh, at least according to the Criterion essay, um, written by Chuck Stevens, suggests that in order to make money after this movie, Rogue started doing uh, Coca-Cola commercials and rock videos, and right. But but then again, we we've we have talked a lot about the fact that like those pay super duper well. Yeah, uh, well, they do, yeah. but because but he was doing this because he couldn't get the movie, right. uh, presumably because he couldn't get the movies he wanted made, made, right? Uh, but I don't know. Um, he does, interestingly enough, have a little cameo at the start of this movie, a blink and you miss it sort of Hitchcockian thing, um, where he's talking to one of the camera operators in the opening sequence as they're setting up the... Uh, Monroe's famous upskirt scene from uh, Seven Year Itch. Uh, and in that way, you know, this is 
It's a movie about a lot of stuff, right? Yes. <laughs> we're dealing with Einstein's guilt. We're dealing with the nature of fame. We're dealing with uh, the nature of film and, and uh, you know, shooting in live environments, right? And uh, that whole opening sequence about where we're just surrounded by hundreds of men uh, working on the film and not who are really just there to get a peek at Marilyn Monroe's underwear, right? Right. Uh, to, to the point where even the fan overheats. Right, yes, yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, which is a great joke. I do love it. <laughs> um, but uh, that's the other thing about Russell in the... Uh, that reminds me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all over right now and I apologize for that. But one of the other things Russell says in one of the, one of the bonus materials is she describes this movie as a comedy. Right. And yes. says, says, I'd never, I'd never worked in comedy before. So that was something. Uh, and that was just mind blowing to me because I had just watched this movie and I would not have called it a comedy. No, me neither. <laughs> I think the thing was, is uh, that like, I, I. I my thought process on that was like I was like in my head I was like ah she must mean in the Greek sense since nobody died <laughs> yeah, well maybe. nobody died at the end of the movie <laughs> yeah I guess <laughs> is this the first time she's ever been a movie where her character did not die by the end <laughs> no or or at least somebody didn't die yeah. yeah might be the first time she's been in a rogue movie where she didn't die uh, she. She plays the dead girlfriend in bad timing. Right. So I don't. Yeah. It's. It's. I don't know. I, that. I. I. That also struck me. Like I am glad that you and I had the same. Yeah. Wait. What now? Yeah. You were in a what? Yeah. Um. And that. That was my. That is always my. My inherent response when any time somebody describes something as a comedy that is clearly not is I'm like ah they mean in the Greek sense. Now. Now certainly much of what she is doing in this movie is comedic. Right. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, yes, yes. I mean, and and so are so it's kind of everybody else. Yeah, but it's in like a very different sort of weirder tradition of comedy than like what we think of when we say a comedy, right? Yeah, if nothing, um, it's more like the, is, this is more like a British pantomime than than something I would yes, straightforward yeah, exactly, call a comedy, yeah. right? They're playing sort of broad interpretations of these characters in a in particular ways too but yeah if any of these people were still alive it would have we would almost call it like yeah a kind of lampooning or something like yeah. that but it's they're all dead so it's not it's just whatever it is um they were all dead right joe dimaggio died pretty sure yeah i'm pretty sure no, dimaggio was what still alive did dimaggio didn't out? die until 99 so he was being like he was yeah. the only one being lampooned. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. I wonder how Dimaggio reacted to this movie. Anyway, um, I'm gonna go out. He probably didn't even. He probably maybe he knew it existed. Probably didn't see it. If Joe Dimaggio uh, is as care. dumb as this movie portrays Joe Dimaggio to be, he never realized that he was being portrayed in this movie. Yeah, the character's called the the baseball player. That's not that's not me. I I really appreciate anybody. that. Like the card at the end that just says the baseball player. Yeah. Yeah, it's very. I good. don't know that that like that that like did something to my brain. I was like, "This is that is obviously another comedic moment, right?" Where, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there yeah, there are comedic moments, but it, I would not call it a comedy. Yeah, right. And I think neither would you. I would not. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, I, I very much would not. Um, I think it is a. I just like the idea. Teresa Russell's like, 
only thinks of things in the Greek sense yeah. as far as like acting is concerned. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. She refuses to acknowledge any other tradition of, of, uh, of acting. Right. Yeah. Even, even if we're dichotomizing into something has to be a drama or a comedy, uh, I'd still put this. This uh, is still a drama. This is still a drama. Yes, yeah. I mean, in the modern like lexicon, yeah. this is a drama. Yeah. Like straight up, definitely. I will also say that the the poster on Wikipedia makes this seem like it's going to be a comedy too. Uh, does it? Yeah, I didn't. It is. Oh yeah, yeah. it's got that really solid eighties like. Yeah poster thing going on i don't know like the f- 80s comedy poster thing the fact that the, it's like the sweatshirt right. einstein's wearing says he was mc squared so that we know it's einstein like right it's just it it, I it doesn't lo- have I a lot of faith movie in whoever's like looking this. at this poster <laughs> yeah yeah that you're gonna look at them and be like who the fuck is this old guy yeah, like, uh, yeah. Um, you're gonna joe dimaggio your way into this movie right and not know who einstein is uh, what a weird, what a weird choice on that. Wasn't this the heyday of the Einstein poster too? Probably. Like, I mean, like that. You know that. You know the one I'm yeah, talking with the about. Yeah, It still yeah. existed when we were in college. Yeah, but like the that I feel like the late '80s, early '90s was like the time in which that was at its peak of power. The idea right. that somebody would be like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Yeah. Um. <laughs> The most famous scientist in history. Right. Well, that's that's part of part of the nature of film in this, or the nature of fame in this movie too, right? Einstein has no idea. Like, he kind of recognizes Monroe, but doesn't necessarily. Because one, why would she be there? Like, you know, context matters to recognizing people. Um, right. Yeah. You're like. Wh- yeah. You're not going to automatically assume that the person yeah. at your door is a famous like right. actress. DiMaggio doesn't know who anyone is besides him and his wife. Basically, <laughs> uh, the senator just assumes that both the ball player and the actress are impersonators. Right. So everyone's got their own. You know, these are. Four incredibly famous people in their own rights, in their own fields, right? Uh, and, you know, something like the actress can't go anywhere without everyone following her. Right. The ball player can walk through the streets of New York and get recognized occasionally. And he gets asked for... Uh, Which is like well, but is a is a weird caveat to like the way this story works, yeah. right? Because that's a wildly inaccurate representation of Joe DiMaggio too. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio in New York is going to get even it, in 1954. It's going to be recognized by literally every fucking person he meets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess presumably but it's, a, it's a it's a conceit of the film to make it work. Right. Right. Um, but yeah. yeah. Um, he's only famous among baseball fans, which is just the entirety of New York. Einstein is. Famous, visually recognizable, but also I feel like maybe even in 1954, mythalized in a way where if you saw someone who looked like Einstein on the street, you wouldn't assume it was Einstein, even as he has such. Right, a, you would assume it's somebody pretending to be Einstein, yeah. like dressed up as Einstein. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's probably. Although, yeah, I would say probably because 
Einstein has such a distinct yeah. physical would, appearance. Would images of Einstein have been proliferated enough that the average person I'm would recognize very Einstein? Certain they would have, yes. I think they would have. Because they absolutely would have. I, I think that, like, I think essentially... Because bear in mind that like Einstein comes into the zeitgeist in a very in a very truly definition of the word zeitgeist way, yeah. right? Like Einstein is not like a TV personality. He's not a person who, but he gives he gives multiple like um, sort of uh, what you call it uh, presentations of Congress and stuff that yeah. get televised and recorded for film reels. To the result that like he's just a person like. The reason we know Einstein now among us is that, like, he is because he never left. You know, we're taught about him maybe in school, but you're not really. You know what I mean? Like, when you really stop and think, like, nobody, like, gave you a lesson on Einstein when you were growing up. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. He just true. continues to be in the – because the things he he's, he's about are not things you can teach a fourth grader unless it's the Star Trek universe. Um, and so – you just know who he is because he just continues to exist in the zeitgeist in a way that, like, even Joe DiMaggio doesn't. Does that make sense? Like, the most famous baseball player in the world, I don't know. I mean, I cannot guarantee you that if I saw a real image of him, I would be able to identify exactly who he was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, there would be context clues because it would probably be, like, a baseball card or something like that. But, like... What I mean is, like, I don't, rem- I can't off the top of my head recall what Do- Joe DiMaggio's face looks right. like. Um, I know, you know, Marilyn Monroe and and Einstein fit into the category of like, like sort of instant recognition, and that's because they have unique like physical appearances. Um, and like we even see like the woman putting them. I, I got a little confused at the end because I got like kind of like I couldn't follow when it started getting a little bit jumpy. There's is it Marilyn Monroe adding the mole or is it the woman who was the prostitute who was hired Ooh. to play Marilyn Mon- to be putting on the mole? I think she's in the white dress, which the prostitute I don't believe is in. I can't. So I my, think it the is the prostitute was in a red dress. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is the actress putting on the mole to right. To and fully so the implication her is that, that she her. Leaves. Right, is that her appearance is an affectation? Yeah. That that she is, that the 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 uniqueness of her physicality is a thing she has to create, whereas Einstein's is just a function of his existence, right? Like so, everybody has different levels of recognition, sort of, to us as a modern audience, regardless of what they would be in 1954, is almost irrelevant, right? Because this movie isn't intended for audiences yeah. in 1954. This is intended for audiences now. You know Einstein. On visual appearance, right? With you don't the actor doesn't even have to look that much like Einstein, right? Right. You know, like I know who the fuck that guy is. It's Marilyn Monroe, the actor. Yeah, right. It is the hair. The actress, the actor playing Marilyn Monroe, has to look fairly look closer to Marilyn Monroe than a person playing Einstein does, and. There are and and they're talking about the affectation that like to create Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and, and then if, the other two might as well be any Joe anybody. Right, and that's you know what we get back to what I said at the beginning about the right the stereotypical portrayals here is that Monroe is visually famous. 
Einstein is visually mm-hmm. recognizable. He's not famous for what he looks like, but people know what he looks like. I mean, I was I would say that he is it, it he's on a weird <laughs> fine yeah. line there because he is I I would say he's a little he's he's visually known like yeah. kind of globally. He is uh Maybe a little, st- maybe a little famous for his appearance, and and of course because it is so weird. Part of the ball player in this movie is that he at least believes himself to be famous for his image, right? He's on baseball cards around the country, right. uh, around the world, even. Right, he is talking then, about the idea yeah. of his image. But then the card he pulls out at the end, the other funny thing about it, not just that it's <laughs> labeled the ball player, doesn't fucking look anything like him. Yeah, it's just a, it's it's not even a caricature of him. It's a cartoon it's a, of yeah, a baseball a player. Yeah, uh, it's nothing. It's yeah. Uh, so you know, people people in 1954 in the heyday of 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 his career and and would cards, absolutely know what people he looks would know like. what he absolutely 100 like. much yeah. more than I would right. And of course, but you know, seeing that's a there's a but the go ahead Sorry. watching a baseball game going in person or seeing it on television, uh, you're not going to be able to recognize him from that because the fidelity of those images are so. You know, he's well, so far away. what you're going to get though, right. if you if you go to a, you won't, yeah, not from a, a, a not from a, a a a baseball game, certainly. Yeah. But what you will get is newsreel footage right. that you will have seen interviews with him because he is the most famous baseball player in the world. Right. You will have seen newsreels where he is interviewed, and you will know his face, and you'll know him for baseball cards and other things. He'll have been on newspapers. He'll have been his face will have been in your world, right? Uh, right. So in 1954, yes, he his face is famous. In 19 and what, again, I've already lost track of what year this movie came out. 50, we talked about it. 1985. Yeah. I would argue that in 1985, he is probably significantly less visually famous. Yeah. Already, right, and that's the kind of fame that comes with being the best baseball player ever. Includes the sort of fleetingness of the fact that like when you're no longer playing baseball you're no longer the best baseball player ever right you, you know does that make sense like you that 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 has a, a serious expiration yeah time that those other things maybe don't that the the things that the others are famous for have less uh, of they expire slower yeah. I mean, yes, it's presumably at some point no one will recognize who Marilyn Monroe is. That will happen. That time will come to pass. But it's the expiration date is longer. Same for Einstein. But Einstein, I would argue, might be the one who exists the most in a sort of permanent state of zeitgeist. Maybe. It, like, obviously, all things will come to pass, right? But, like, um, he, I would argue, probably exists in the sort of, like, longer, longest term form of cultural knowledge just because Marilyn Monroe as we get further we we find this with other um with anything invo- involving movies right movies have a sort of shelf life right like they 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 same thing exists for books and and music and stuff like that right like i i had this conversation with somebody i think you and i had this conversation about the beatles right yeah the other day um there's like a thing that happens, right? Like, my kids know some Beatles songs. They don't know them all. I know them all because my dad knows played the, played it all the time, right? Their kids will know fewer Beatles songs. There will come a time where a majority of kids have never heard a single Beatles song, and that will be true for Marilyn Monroe and her films. 
things will pop up in media that will revitalize her image, but they won't have the staying power that her original movies did, right? Mm -hmm. Like revitalizations of her image will not carry the same cultural weight that the original actual work did. That's just sort of the nature of these sort of things, right? Like, uh, you know, somebody pretending, playing Marilyn Monroe will not have, will not like continue, will, will help to extend the shelf life, but, but none of them have the same impact that the original action did, right? The thing is, is that like, to a certain extent, Einstein exists in a weird, I would argue that Einstein exists in a weird sort of like other space mm-hmm. because he's essentially famous for being Einstein. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. He's not famous for like making movies or being beautiful. He's famous for being him. Yeah. Um, which I which seems to have a longer life sp- life shelf life. Again, it's not permanent. Nothing's permanent. But yeah, it's just it's just thinking about how fame works is an interesting thing that this movie yeah, talks well, about. I think, but isn't even the main point. I would say. I th- uh, I, I don't know because you're you're essentially making an argument that. Uh, Einstein has become himself a cultural touchstone, and I think if we yes. if we dig that back, it would be that Einstein is the smart guy, right? And and right, you're going well. To- he's become he's become something different. He has become he has become the sort of not just for us, not just for Americans or something like that, but for the world. Yeah. The like the I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for, and I'm, I'm failing. Is essentially, as you said, the smart guy. He is the yeah. quintessential smart guy. Right, and like, I would, that's a, that has a lot of staying power. That's an insane amount of staying. power. It does, but I think I think as as the er archetype of the smart guy in culture now, uh, I think that similarly. Monroe is still the er archetype of I, I, the bombshell at the very least. I yes, of the bombshell, but I don't see the problem is is that the smart guy we're having a very uh, this is a very odd conversation <laughs> yeah. to be having, but my issue is is that because beauty operates in a different way than intelligence does as far as cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. Intelligence is a steady state thing as far as cult- our culture is concerned. And and presumably at this point the sort of hegemonic world culture is concerned like you're either smart or you're not. Yeah. I think that's like true. there is no like it's a it's a as far as our now that is not true yeah. in actuality, but as far as culture and the way that um, uh, the way that Western culture has spread itself around the world, there is it is it is a subjective th- it is theoretically again yeah this is not the actual truth of the world okay this is just the way it is understood by a majority of people basically around the world is that you that intelligence is subjective right thank you. The weird racist assholes who invented the concept of IQ, yeah, um, well, and IQ testing for that. Okay. Um, well, I mean, for for solidifying it in culture. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. Like, I'm not. Mythos. <laughs> no, my. So okay, my sorry. hints that I want to say something are not to push back sorry. against anything you're saying about IQ. IQ is dumb. Um, finish your thought, please. Oh, so my point is, is that because beauty is is understood by society even to be objective and to be something that's constantly shifting, right? What you thought was beautiful, what people thought was beautiful, we all understand fairly deeply that what we thought was beautiful 10 years ago because we see things from the past and go, well, that's, 
you know, fashion and things are constantly shifting, right? She is definitely the quintessential bombshell, but she's not the quintessential identity identity of the most beautiful woman in the world. That that doesn't last, right? Like that doesn't have that same staying power because we we as a society understand that, like, because like you look at her like somebody who has a different set of beauty standards defined by like now looks at her and maybe says like, well, that's I don't get it. You does that make sense? Yeah. So they can't, whereas they can look at like the this sort of like, ah, yes, the guy who's famous for being smart and we understand is the definition of smart guy continues to be smart. Yeah. In perpetuity. Well, I'd say that this play and this film come from a time where the named archetype here, uh, if you were, you know, it's, it's like that, what is it? The birdiest bird, or the, the, the most fruit-like fruit. Yeah. The, yes. the bluebird or the apple. You, you, if we're looking for the most professory professor, Einstein's going to come up in 85, in 54. Uh, the most actressy actress, probably in 85, still Marilyn Monroe. Maybe even today, still Marilyn might Monroe. Might be. Might be. I yeah. mean, I, I do wonder, right? And we have no way to like get to the heart of that because yeah. we, we're dealing with we're dealing with an artifact of the past talking about another thing of the past, right? Yeah. A thing we get to do sometimes, which is fun. Yeah. Um, In, I, it's hard to say though, right? Because like, if you asked a teenager in 1985, name one actress. Yeah. Like top of your head, go actress. Like no thinking time, go. Yeah. Would they say Marilyn Monroe? I don't Monroe? know who they would I don't say. know. Yeah, that's, I really don't know. Exactly. Yeah. I have no idea who they would say, and I don't know if it would be Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. On the other hand, <laughs> name a smart guy. Right. Always going to be Einstein. You're going to get a high that. percentage of Einstein. Yeah. Like, but, name a famous smart guy, and you're going to get, you're going to get, I don't know. I'm just, it's an interesting thing to think about, because it sort of seems like Do you, he may have been solidified in yeah. the cultural zeitgeist on a nearly permanent basis. Do you think in 85... Name a senator, get you McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy, no fucking way. Yeah, I think I think as a proto, I mean as a prototypical senator, McCarthy's up there, and probably yeah, given for sure. the political. But you climate, have to know a little bit yeah. about the history of politics to, to to have that political environment of eighty five. Depending on the age of the person you ask, you might get McCarthy or a Kennedy. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're asking for a senator, yeah. I bet you're getting a candidate. Yeah. Um, if you're asking for a politician, you're just going to get whoever's president, which is going to yeah. be right. And of course, a baseball right? player in 1985, you're not going to get Dimaggio. No, <laughs> no one's. No one. Well, that's the issue. That's yeah. what I'm talking DiMaggio about. Is is these are fleeting levels. Of, like everybody, everybody here exists in a sort of yeah. certain level of defined fame. Yeah. And again, I don't even think that's really the main point of the movie. Right, right. But uh, it is just the a thing that the movie is also talking. But it does about. lend us in the conversation this movie wants to have about fame, the fact that DiMaggio and McCarthy are involved here are only side artifacts of the story we want to tell about Einstein and Monroe. Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So they are the two people who have yeah. a significantly higher right. level of cultural and like, and McCarthy and DiMaggio um, are incredibly famous people, but they aren't. Yes. even they aren't on the but level of famous fame <laughs> as right. as the people they're associated with in this movie. Right, and 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 worth noting, they are they they have a level of fame 
at the time of their power, they have the, they're like just as famous, right. right? Right. But they are now famous, even by 1985, are famous with people of a certain sort of set of interests, right? A baseball fan will absolutely recognize Joe DiMaggio right. by like. Visually. But even if we're historically I'm talking about not. the most the most baseball-y of baseball players. You're going to get Babe Ruth. Well, we all know the answer to that question. <laughs> right. Yes, you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because he did. He entered the zeitgeist. Right. He created, he became archetypical yeah. and therefore started, has come to transcend his actual worldly existence, right? Like he, Einstein became the archety- archetypical smart professor person. Right. Genius, right? He's the archetypical genius. Um, like, it's it's definitely like if you say like name a blonde actress, yeah. Fucking Marilyn Monroe is like if you say probably shoots up the top of the list. If you say name a corrupt senator, you're gonna go with McCarthy too. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. You know. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of corrupt senators to compete with. That's fair. Um, you know, you know, uh, name a famous person who hate who who like name uh, name a famous person who uh, hated uh, communism. You'll get, yeah, uh, yeah. Just McCarthy, right? Um, but like. What I mean is, like, it, it, Babe Ruth did the thing that Joe DiMaggio, in many ways, didn't, right? Which is he, his his image and who he is yeah. became the archetype. And you can only essentially have one at a time. Yeah. You get you only get the one because if you have more than one, you don't have sort of cultural, right. uh, sort of, you, you, you Dima- no longer have DiMaggio a, might uh, come up if you say name two, but... <laughs> Right, yeah. I mean, you're definitely you're gonna like you will get to him very quickly, yeah. Because people do know that name. That name is right, very famous. But again, if you show me just a picture of Joe DiMaggio, isolated away from the the sort of the um the sort of uh, artifacts of his baseball playing, right? Just show me a picture of him, like I don't know, eating lunch. Like <laughs> right, I don't know who the fuck right, that right. is. Don't even know. Who but that you can guy show is. me a picture of Marilyn Monroe eating lunch, and I'd be like, that's fucking Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Or uh, what was the lady in the '90s who who tried her damnedest to look like Marilyn Monroe? I don't know. There's dozens '90s, early 2000s. History, so I know. I'm trying to think of like she married a a rich dude. I can't remember. Oh, you're, was you're thinking of Anna lady, Nicole. I feel like... Yes, Anna, thank you. Yeah, Anna Nicole Smith. There are there are pictures of her where she you know because that was an affectation yeah. she was going for. Right. That to the point where like you there were pictures like well if that was if this is just a colorized photo of Marilyn Monroe I believe it. Honest, honestly, because I don't know her face with the level of detail. You show me a picture of Joe DiMaggio where he's not sitting beside Marilyn Monroe. I'm not going to be able to name who he is. So, <laughs> yeah, probably. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, and so, like, I, it's just an interesting. It is an interesting thing they are talking about, and it's an yeah. interesting thing they're talking about as a sort of side note on the bigger issues the movie is actually exploring. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is like. The th- oh, go ahead, go ahead, please. I said, while this movie is obviously very fictionalized, um, it is based on a number of real incidents. One of them is that among Monroe's belongings when she passed was a signed picture of Albert Einstein. And this the play is to imagine how that might have come into her possession. Right. Um, right. Directly post the filming of that skirt scene, in the seven-year itch, uh, DiMaggio and Monroe had a very public fight. Uh, he blew up in front, like in front of everybody, like on the set, which is obviously on the street. 
uh, right. DiMaggio absolutely blew up about it. So um, there's there's those hints, and you know we Einstein's never asked, as far as I can recall, to speak to the Un-American Committee. Um, McCarthy, you know, really all this implies is that there's some sort of background of McCarthy trying to convince him to turn and name names. And that, that might be a thing that happened. But even in Einstein's personal writings, he writes to, I looked, I looked into this a little because I really wanted to know uh, if it was just a blank spot. Um, There's someone he writes to who was going to be, who had been subpoenaed. Uh, and he writes to her and says, don't take the fifth, just refuse to show up because taking the fifth lends legitimacy. That's not what the fifth amendment is for. You're not actually accused of a crime here. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Uh, is what he writes to her essentially. Uh, but yeah. Well, I seem to remember, I seem to remember re and I think it's mostly to do with like the release of Oppenheimer that I, that I, looked into like i seem to remember that 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 einstein's stance on nuclear proliferation and that sort of stuff did make him oh yeah almost certainly he uh, made him not a person that was on on everybody on uh the sort of political establishments like yeah actually christmas card list but bringing up oppenheimer again uh i do feel like nolan is in conversation with insignificance here i know you haven't seen oppenheimer yeah the pro I well, and I never will. Yeah. Um, but the thing about it is, is that like um, everything you've described, uh, you have described this movie in pretty significant detail yeah. to me at this point. Um, it seems like he's in conversation, but like maybe doesn't get. Yeah, but maybe not a very good conversation. I don't. I don't. <laughs> like it may not be a very rewarding conversation. Yeah, I don't. I don't. We could argue that, and you haven't seen it, so we're, we won't. Um, we won't. We should yeah. not have this conver- like this so, that deep of a conversation about this. But there's uh, inside and outside the film. Uh, so there is the bonus bit where uh, Rogue Rogue I think is talking about the bomb aspects of this movie and says something to the extent of young people not worrying about the bomb anymore. That that's not something people are afraid of that young people are afraid of they don't they don't see it as a possibility or whatever um and that is nolan's stated reason for making oppenheimer is that his children were not scared of the bomb uh and that he he felt like a fear of nuclear proliferation should be something people still have uh here's the thing that is a that is a thing that Americans don't think about. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's very fair. Uh, that's a, it's a very specific I think that specifically Americans pre- do not think Presumably about. other Western There's cultures. a lot of people very worried. I think there's a lot of people who are very worried about it yeah. in other places where that would be a target, yes. not a sender. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah. And then uh, we get the line in this movie from the senator where the professor has told him to get someone else essentially and the senator says Oppenheimer his name casts a shadow of doom since Nagasaki and of course the line is meant to be ironic given that we keep seeing Einstein himself have flashbacks to Hiroshima 
and his clock, his watch right. has stopped at 8.15, the time the bomb was dropped yes. on Hiroshima. Yes. Um, another interesting thing, more subtle, uh, that, that really makes me think that, uh, that Nolan is thinking of insignificance, even as I haven't heard insignificance come up uh, in conversation, is above, you know, in Einstein's hotel room, is Picasso's Woman and Child at the Seashore. And within right. the context of this movie, it is a, in conversation with Monroe's balance between fame and motherhood and her inability to have a child, even as she is the most famous woman uh, in the world and, and what that means to womanhood, I guess, if we want to go further. Down well, I line. think there's I think there's a de- there's a deeper point I think it's trying to get at yeah. about her life. Yeah, that I do want to talk about when you're done with this. Yeah. So I, I, it's not. I don't think it's just a discussion of womanhood. I think it goes a lot deeper. Than right. That. Right. Well, we can get that into that in just a second. Yes. You you finish your thought. Only, I just want to yeah. want to put a pin in it. Right. Only to say, uh, in Oppenheimer, Nolan uses Picasso's woman sitting with crossed arms, not to similar ends. It is just a painting that Oppenheimer stares at. <laughs> in a sequence. Um, and that, incidentally, is a painting. Women, uh, woman sitting with crossed arms is a painting that that uh, Oppenheimer's parents owned. Uh, it was in his childhood apartment. So, uh, but just the fact that Nolan makes a point of using another Picasso painting, a, a fairly similar Picasso painting, well, not similar. That's the thing. Woman, woman and Child well, of the see, Seashore the is not right? prototypical is there... Picasso. Is another interesting aspect of it, right? I get what you're saying, and yeah. I'm not gonna. Ar- I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I am playing the advocate for the devil here to yes. a certain extent. Is that like there's the fact that like it was a, a a painting that was in Oppenheimer's family's house. Yeah, feels like the sort of detail that somebody like Nolan would like latch onto. Oh yeah, probably. Like kind of for no reason. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I don't know. No one. It does make sense. I, I don't know. I, I'm. You're not going to shake me from my just general disdain for Nolan as a. <laughs> yeah. As, like, I, I, I can't. That. I can't ever let go of the fact that like I don't feel like he necessarily deserves the accolades he receives for the films he makes. I just don't like his movies. Like basically any of them. I've never seen one I liked basically. Um, and I've seen most. This is I think the only one I've not seen. Yeah. Is the is Oppenheimer? I just won't see it. I'm just. Yeah, I'm done. Right, I'm just not going to do it anymore. It uh, he's crossed the line. I'm not going to. I'm not willing to cross with him. So we're done, essentially. Um, but yeah, I. So yeah, I. But I do get what you're saying. I mean, there's definitely an argument to be made. You could definitely write an academic paper making that argument. Yeah. You know what I mean? And probably pull it off pretty easily. It wouldn't even be a very uh, terribly hard paper to write, right? You could make a. You could write a quick, a quick, uh, you know, article for a newspaper or something. Uh, not a newspaper, like some sort of magazine. That effect, and you would have plenty of supporting evidence. I am fairly certain, right? Um, th- so the thing I wanted, I wanted to talk about, yes, um, about what what her not being able to conceive of a child means for the movie is. I think that's actually more of a thing that's sort of in conversation to me. This is just my impression of it. Is more in conversation with things like the bomb and the fact that like um, Einstein can't complete this. F- can't do this formula right as far as this movie's concerned he can but he can't right you know um 
is it sort of reminds me of that sort of that Marx quote about uh, the weight of history, like hanging around the neck of uh, I forget exactly what it is. It's uh, what is it? Uh, the attrition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like this idea that like the past drags you down and prevents you from a, from creating the thing that you should be able to create. And like Marilyn, like we are kind of given the impression that Marilyn Monroe's past is what prevents her from being able to have children. Yes. Like her whole life history is, is the reason why she can't do it. That like her, her past is literally stopping the future from being born. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like when we get into conversations about like why society, like why is McCarthy's thing happening is the same conversation, right? It's, it's, these decisions that have happened in the past are preventing the sort of new world from being born, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Einstein sort of exists on the cusp of this because in theory, as far as the movie's concerned, is he could revolutionize the universe, but the past is preventing him from doing it. Marilyn Monroe can't either uh, create can't create new life because of because of her past. Like right. this sort of idea. Because and again, and understanding that McCarthy and both McCarthy and DiMaggio represent those that thing that that weight around their neck, essentially, yeah. right? Um, that's that's dragging them down. So yeah. it's just a, it's it feels like the movie's trying at least on a sort of like not like it's not the only point the movie's trying to make, but the idea that like your the, the the past literally haunts the present, right? And, you know, of course, making a movie in 1985 about 1954 is quite literally about how the past is haunting the present, right? The past is haunting the future. Yeah, yeah. it's haunting the present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. McCarthy's, McCarthy's shadow falls long over the politics of the rest of American history as far as, as, far as, right. we, as, far as we have lived, um, at least. Right, and and we can follow a very clear. There, it's not even difficult to follow a very clear through line all the way to Reagan and and everything right. like that. Right. Yeah. Um. Right. So a criticism I have made publicly about Oppenheimer is that I felt that Nolan was cowardice to not show the effects of the bomb. Uh, particularly because there is a scene in which we watch Oppenheimer himself see a slideshow about the effects of the bomb. But we don't see it. While we don't see them. And I've I've read a lot of discussion around this. Uh, I still stand by what I said. Um, I I stand by what you say because his stated goals... Yeah. Uh, Especially if that's his stated goal. Not being afraid of the bomb is like... yeah. I mean, literally, all you need to do to be afraid of the bomb is yeah. to like I saw. just walk in that. Fu- like again, we talked about this. There's a museum. Right. It's not very far from my house. Yeah, you walk in that fucking museum. You don't even have to go very far into the museum to be terrified. Right. Um, I saw somebody say this online somewhere, and I it was it was either a tweet or on Blue Sky. I cannot remember where I saw it. I looked and could not find it again. Um, so I apologize for not citing it correctly. Um. But I saw someone point out that they felt that criticism laid at Oppenheimer and Barbie um, were, uh, you know, there's the dichotomy of what people are saying about these movies. There are people who are criticizing them for not going far enough, uh, for being, um, 
simplistic to the point of all, almost being reactionary. Uh, Barbie in its feminist message and Oppenheimer in whatever it's saying about the bombs. Uh, whereas there is the other side of people who have never experienced a message even <laughs> where, where the very idea that, hey, maybe the U.S. shouldn't have dropped the bomb is itself such a radical message. And is, very, is a novel is a novel yeah, idea. Is a novel well, idea. Well, yeah, and like that basically the, anybody who graduated from American high school, right? And that the presentation of feminism within Barbie is it is a novel thing. And as as novel things that people are experiencing for the first time, of course, it's phenomenal and great, and and they're falling in love with it because it's such a strong message. Well, it's not a strong message. It's just the strongest message you've ever seen, and that itself is a problem. Right. But I get it. Um, so. <laughs> What do we think about Rogue's portrayal of the devastation of the bomb? Uh, I as, mean, as okay, haunting, so as haunting Einstein here. I would say that to a certain extent, it's like okay. My thought process on this is that it is it's better than what you've described to me as existing in opera. Yes. Okay. But that doesn't sound like it was very hard to accomplish. Yeah. Well, there is um, there is a sequence in Oppenheimer where he is giving the congratulatory "We did it" speech right after the bombs are dropped, and he starts to imagine his audience uh, being turned to dust, among other things. And it's very quick, and it's it's not a lot. Um, but I do want to I recognize mean, that that does exist that- in Oppenheimer. Right, uh, but like I and I like I haven't seen the movie, yeah. so I don't know what that scene looks like. I mean, the, the, the important thing that this one even sort of fails at, yeah. but but like is better at, I think probably, is that like you need to portray that in a very visceral way. Yeah. Like that needs to be, like we're talking about people being vaporized and turned into shadows. Yeah. Like that's I will, and then those who are not, that's only the lucky few. Right. Those are the lucky yeah. ones. The rest are burned alive, are yeah. are just covered in lesions for like the, whatever life they have left. They're breathing and drinking irradiated water and air, so they are going to die of, in, of various internal cancers within like within like days. Like the the thing about it is like this one at least gets the idea that like we're being shown people burning yeah. to death, and that's I think it sounds gross to say, but like. That's kind of important. Yeah. I will say what what we see here is certainly more visceral than what we see in Oppenheimer. Uh, and brighter. Just the fact... Oppenheimer, what we see exists sort of in shadow, too. Right? Um, right. And they are both... They are both within the minds of the scientists, of our point of view. Right. right? But, um, but... But in this way, like... You get the impression that, like, at least as far as this is concerned, like... Einstein is imagining the actual suffering of real people. Right. Which is important, right? It's an important thing. Whereas Oppenheimer is just sort of casting it onto his audience. It doesn't sound, again, I'm not seeing it. Yeah. I won't. Yeah. But like, you've not described that to me as in a way that convinces me that like it has the intended effect. Yeah. And I don't. Um, it- it did not feel to me as if it had the intended effect. Now there is there is a, another sort of layer to Nolan's thing in that one of the uh, 
one of the people that Nolan sees or that Oppenheimer sees utterly destroyed, turned to ash, uh, is played by one of Nolan's children. On, <laughs> with, with right, so I'm again, glad it was a very cathartic again, experience. For again, Nolan back himself. to Nolan. Good for to him, Nolan I being guess. The idea Nolan has for the impetus for making the movie, his stated impetus for making the movie, being that uh, his children are not scared. My children specifically are not scared. Yes. Well, it's to me like Just, I, when we've talked about the politics of Nolan in yeah. the past, I get the impression that Nolan exists in a very Nolan exists in the world that this movie kind of does talk about, which yeah. is a sort of very solipsist world of like, well, the things that matter to me. Yeah. Um. What do we are think? what's important, not the things that matter to other people. Broadening a little bit, not just Einstein having a vision of the bomb destroying New York City and the people he sees in front of him, but particularly of the bomb destroying Marilyn Monroe. Well, so... I think it does sort out, like, it does sort out, uh, like, kind of, like, work together with, like, my, like, it is a supporting factor in my argument about what the movie's, like, main thesis mm-hmm. is, because that's the true and ultimate past destroying the present thing, right? Yeah. The thing he created permanently, forever, and all eternity eliminates the possibility of that new life. Right. It eradicates, she is attempting like her character in some ways represents this attempt this constant ongoing attempt because we know this has happened again and again and again this ongoing attempt to create new life right yes and 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 einstein's work represents the ultimate annihilation of that capability she is failing because of the past the past is stopping her from from being able to do it it is that weight that like that you know that haunts her but the bomb represents something even more intense which is like the past can literally reach out and and annihilate all possibility of that happening um and so in that way right i guess nolan and rogue have the same goals in mind yeah right like kids are not scared enough of the bomb but like to me it sounds like rogue is engaged with it on a much more intellectual level to like despite the a lot of really goofy elements of this movie yeah. is actually engaged with it in a very intellectual way discussing what does the bomb actually represent to society to humanity right yeah and the fact that like the bomb has already eliminated that ability for i think it's like 220,000 people yeah you, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a theoretical thing. It has happened. It's already been done. It just means we just have to bear in mind that it could again happen, right? Yeah. And that's the important takeaway. Well, I, and like, I think it also speaks to what you are saying earlier about Einstein being the the better remembered of the two, ultimately, in history, is that the bomb does eclipse whatever film culture might might continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, the bomb represents, like, despite the fact that we can say, quote-unquote, nobody's scared of the bomb anymore, Yeah, is a, is a funny sentence to say, because, yes, we don't think about it all the time. Right. But sure as shit, if there's even a little bit of concern that it might actually happen, everybody would care. You know what I mean? Like, right. it is the ultimate, like, scary thing. To the point where, like, that's the problem, right? We've talked about this before with other things. You can't, you can't 
living constantly in fear of a thing that could happen is is a mental is a is a yes. is a is a mental health crisis. You know what I mean? Like we have to we as a society have to be able to ignore it sometimes, or else we are all in permanent mental health crisis. Yes, and like that's not that's not a failure. That's not a flaw in the people who are doing it. It's a flaw in the society that it has to happen, right? That you have to go like it's the same like we're all in like doing that with a with a hundred things all at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have to walk around ignoring the fact that there's like how many millions of people are starving right now right. in the country I live in. Right. Like that's a fact I have to actively ignore some of the time in order to like in order to function be able period. to function yeah. as a human. Yeah. And that's the truth of the bomb too. And that and like we've just gotten better at it because it's become a sort of cultural like sort of right. mantra almost right we we don't think about it in every just suggestive su- successive generation thinks about it less because you you're building up a sort of resistance to it you you've 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 acclimated to its existence to, to ignoring its existence uh but like for example if you live closer and are more threatened by an actual like possibly a you know emerging nuclear power that's not right. a thing you ignore as often, right? Like th- th- North Korea's nuclear, like whatever, and rocket uh, tests are like an ever-present thing here. So instead, people mostly are kind of like actively trying to ignore the rockets that land in the ocean from right. time to time, right? But it's hard to do because it's on the news. Because like, oh shit, another one, right? Like, I, my and and you know, it, it's. I don't know. It is a very, I would argue, a very sort of self-centered, very like. Oh yeah, no, certainly very American-centric worldview to imagine that people don't right. think about these Cer- things all the time. Certainly, the American, uh, you know, you'll you'll have people in the U.S. try to fearmonger about North Korea's nuclear abilities. Right, but the idea that North Korea is going to hit America is yeah. silly. It, and it's that'll, just a silly that'll be, idea. and yeah, that'll be the criticism of that that's brought up. The counterpoint: Well, North Korea will never be able to hit the U.S. It's like, well, they'll still be able to hit a lot of people uh, if they were to. Well, do no, it, and and that's the thing, right? Is that, but that's you get in sort of this, but like yeah. the thing about the difference, well, the thing that defines the difference there is that like you've got the difference between people who are legitimately worried about being hit by a thing versus people who have decided to use this as a method to like do whatever new form of racism they want right, to do. Right, right, right. Yeah. In right. the U.S., you know what I mean? Like, oh well, we've got our we've got our our boogeyman that Certainly. we can use yeah. to like no. US... create whatever new draconic policy that we want to create. Any any fear of being bombed in the U.S. is illegitimate, but uh, that doesn't mean that we should just ignore the plight of the rest of the world, right? No, uh, no, and I that's yeah, that's not what I'm trying to get yeah. at. I'm just sort of getting at the idea that like America use the Imperial Corps uses this this threat exclusively to its own ends that have nothing to do with the actual safety of Americans. Yeah. Uh, is is basically the point I was trying to get at, right? Or the safety of other people in other places either. <laughs> America is not actually worried about the health and safety of of Japanese people. Okay, no, not really. We we know that. Yeah. Uh, so you know, or, or or anybody really for that matter. Right. Right. To the womanhood stuff with Monroe, the actress. She. Oh. Much of her pain with the ball player seems to be around the fact that they cannot have children. Also, 
obviously, and real life, the ball player's jealousy that you know, he's married the most beautiful woman in the world and now is mad that other people look at her. Um, right. Yes. Yes. The 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 classic trap. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um. Within the film, she puts herself back together. Right. She's she's punched in the gut. Uh, presumably suffering an active miscarriage, if not just bleeding from. Yes. No. Uh, we're pretty sure. Right. Yeah. Like I mean, the movie's definitely trying to tell us that. Yeah. Um. And then makes herself back up. Puts on the dim, puts on the mole. Walks out. We get Einstein's vision of her dying horrifically, which is to let us know that Einstein still has that guilt at the end of the film, right? But then she just gives a real chipper bye and walks out the door, right? That's the last, the last well, of the movie. Uh, and, and and what she is in that moment, and I would say that you're you are right. You're like I think there's you know there's layers upon layers, yeah. right? And you are right. She is functioning as the 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 sort of cultural definition of womanhood, right? right. In that moment, right? She literally is being been punched in the stomach. Yeah, and she still has to put on her makeup and make herself act happy, right? Right, make herself act like nothing. It's no big deal, right? Um, and like. And then the movie kind of gets into it. That, and then the movie, you find yourself with the movie getting into a conversation with sort of with itself about which of those two things is actually womanhood, right? Yeah. Is it is it the having children or is it this but, sort of show she has yeah. to put on? But there's also aspects of the show. You know, it's, it's not direct, but to keep the ball player from becoming more violent, everybody has to pretend that McCarthy didn't sucker punch her, right? Uh, right, yes, yeah. Not that anyone really, you know, the professor comes back in and doesn't know that that had happened necessarily, right? Right. Um, she's doing, she's basically yeah. this, like McCarthy's doing it for his own right. ends. She's doing it because, presumably because she just doesn't want to see him be violent, right? right? She's seen that side of him too much or whatever. Yeah. Um, but this idea of... Uh, Womanhood so often, and, and perhaps white womanhood specifically, putting on this mask of calm in order to... Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I would argue probably, at least within the sort of Western cultural yeah. hegemony, like the one of the roles of womanhood as defined by it is mediator, right? right. Is the is the, the sort of the calmer down of violent men. Right. Like... Yeah. Because, like, we kind of get into that thing where, like, who's allowed to be angry, right. who's not, I right? think it, as, a, as a sort of cultural rule. The more we talk about this aspect, of it, the, more, the more intrigued I am that the cultural idea of Barbieheimer sort of exists already from 1985 <laughs> as, as the movie Insignificance. Well, right. It does. It does. Yeah. And that, that's, that's definitely, I don't think, that is not a known thing no, that no. got put into existence. Right. But it is also not an accident of society, right. right? There's a sort of like societal need to balance things and to create this, or and and for literally the character that sort of represents womanhood to be the sort of balancing element to uh, extreme violence, right? Right. The thing is, is that like there, you get into a serious question about whether or not Oppenheimer is actually about extreme violence or not, because 
again, if you're not engaged actively with what that extreme violence was, are you actually talking about what it was? Right. right? Like, are you really talking about the thing that happened or are you talking about the feelings of the dude who did the thing that happened? Those yeah. are different things. And we were very, where I'm, I find myself, and like we keep looping back around because this is a weirdly timed movie. It worked out a little too well. Yeah. It's like, we do feel like we're always like right on the cusp of like the, the Imperial Corps saying, the doing the, I they made me shoot, you know, I, I went to the place and I shot kids and I feel bad about it. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't care if you feel bad about it. That's not important. Yeah. Like that's not like yes you should feel bad that is an important thing for you to feel yeah but I but like that doesn't make all those kids come back right that's an interesting aspect the world to me doesn't about, become a better place because you feel bad yeah an interesting Sorry. aspect to me about Einstein throwing away his papers in this movie and admitting that this is the fifth time he's thrown them out is is this idea of Einstein as someone who can't help but do this work but has finally recognized the dangers of this work. And therefore well, knows that he can't share them. Right. Well, it, it, well, it sort of also engages with the idea that, like, there is a sort of inevitability. Yeah. Even if it's not through Einstein, to right. the like the, the march of 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 technology and progress. Like, it it is a it is a not unfair argument to make that somebody would have like this was a thing. This was yeah. the. And- and Oppenheimer the, makes the, this the, argument. The scientific zeitgeist, right. And, yeah. that, and that is a reasonable argument to make. That, like, if not me, then somebody else. But it's also worth the saying that, like, well, it's not better because it was you. Right. Just because you feel bad about doing it, right? Like, right. Been, I listen, one of the podcasts I listen to, uh, we've talked about, is, is the Trash Future podcast. I've been listening quite right. extensively. And they are talking. they were talking about it just a couple weeks ago, the idea, like, it like just because like the liberal the liberals are going to do this is when within Britain are going to do the same policies but they're going to feel bad about it doesn't right. actually make it better <laughs> like just because they're not skipping gleefully to the to the to the like firing squad does not mean that like it's doesn't mean it's better. I will and, also like, point. Yeah, I will also say that when it comes no, up, I'm just, yeah, go ahead. When the inevitability comes up in Oppenheimer. Um, it is used as a justification for continuing the work that if we don't do this, the Soviets will. But Oppenheimer is also, as a film, actively working against the idea that the U.S. had to drop the bomb by pointing out that the Nazis, the Soviets, they were never going to get here. Or the Nazis, at least, were never going to get here. And once the Nazis weren't going to get there, why drop the bombs, right? Well, the only reason well, so to drop that's the bombs the thing, is right? to, like, the mean, show of force against the Soviets, right? And and that's exactly why the bombs got dropped. Yeah, like, we and all know that. Like, I mean, Oppenheimer actively engages with that, which was and that is a, a valuable art conversation to have, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to imply that everything about Oppenheimer is <laughs> right, bad. Right. I just think it misses yeah, everything you described yeah. to me. Is it misses Absolutely. a very key component? I I, like, I just I sort of want to draw back because I talked to you about Oppenheimer right after I saw it. So all of the really worst parts right. about Oppenheimer is what I was talking about with you. Is our sitting, yeah, we're, we're sitting, sitting in, your in brain. my brain. Yeah. And like and it is a good thing that is engaged with the idea that this was a that right. this was an act intended to essentially draw a line in the sand for the Soviets yeah. and not a thing of any real like necessity. Right. Um but like it is also worth knowing that like but this movie is also engaged with the idea that like that 
the bomb became a scientific inevitability. Right. Like somebody was going all all the like all the dominoes existed. It was yeah. going to be invented. But it doesn't actually matter who invented it because there's not like a good guy and a bad guy. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like I mean, you could definitely argue that you don't you don't want the, the Nazis to have it, but like that's still like that's still a weird argument because look at like everything America's been since it dropped the bomb. Yeah. Like America, like dropping the bomb in many ways, I would argue, creates the 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 America we live in now. Yeah. As the only country that has done this evil thing, yeah. sort of clears out a pathway where you can like, well, nothing matters anymore. There's a sort of there's a sort of creates a sort of um, right. Nihilism of well, we can do anything, of course, because we did that. Of course, I'm super glad that another country didn't do it. But also, I would be happier if the U.S. also didn't do it, right? Well, that's the thing is, right? Like, that's like I would. It sort of comes into like, yeah, I would be glad. It would be nice if no one had done it. Straight up, like one could also. There's a lot of weird arguments you can have because there's a lot of like sort of philosophical kind of conversations that are. They're all theoretical, right? Like, do you actually get what at, what has happened thus far with uh, mutually assured destruction if no one's seen that it's hap- seen it happen? Is a is not an argument for why the bomb should be dropped, but is an interesting kind of like mental, I guess, activity. Yeah, because you you, you still kind of have this idea. Well, I think somebody probably would have done it. And that doesn't make it right to have done it. You know what I mean? Like the fact that somebody would have eventually done it or and probably will eventually do it again does not make the first time right. 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 But it does make for an interesting conversation about like people's sort of psyches and like the way they can or can't understand the, the consequences of actions uh, to other people. Right. Their lack of ability to empathize with people. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just. This movie is in, is trying to talk about a lot of very complicated issues in a kind of lighthearted way. Yeah. And it's successful and also not successful, right? Like, partially because some of the conversations trying to have is overshadowed by sort of an ever-present goofiness. Yeah. It's not, like, ruined. It, it's just, it does feel like, to me, a little bit like, well... Some of the points that are being made are maybe overshadowed to a certain extent by like being in a movie that's a little bit goofy. Speaking of things being overshadowed by a little goofiness, uh, Will Sampson's character in this movie, the hotel or the, the elevator operator. Right. The Cherokee. I don't know why they threw that in. Uh, it's obviously an I addition. I don't know. Right? <laughs> I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, oh, for sure. To the, to the play, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate Will Sampson getting work. Uh, I appreciate adding a character who isn't just a white person. <laughs> and as, as much, well, of, of course, Einstein being Jewish, uh, whiteness is something else there too, right? Is, is, uh, a, is but, a yeah, is a is a relative com- term yeah. with regards to the way society views people, right? right. But like the thing that the thing that's interesting about his character. Is I guess he exists in a. I mean, he does have that sort of like um, 
it is a sort of extension of the of the I, I forget the 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 um I forget the the oh man my brain is tr- tr- absolute trash I forget yeah. uh, the TV tropes term but uh, vagabonds essentially yeah 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 uh, like it's a sort of modified version of that like yeah. providing well yeah he's very psych- noble you know, savage here yeah right very I do think it does provide an a sort of interesting it's supposed I think the goal is maybe to provide a a philosophical counterpoint to exclusively western ideas of of things like inevitability and those kinds of things right yes the idea that there are like other I don't think it's doing a good job of that but I do think it's what it's there for yeah that's the problem it's it's tokenizing and it's it's noble savage stuff yes (laughs) uh particularly with with the character presenting an idea that he has lost his Cherokeeness through working for a wage and eating a lot of hot dogs and watching TV. And somehow Einstein represents more of a Cherokeeness to him now. It's a weird way to go with that conversation. No, it is. It, it definitely could be a lot better. Um I, I I kind of ended up focusing on him talk like them talking about the idea of who or what is the center of the universe right. is is a is a fascinating it's 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 unfortunate that it's couched in a lot of garbage yeah because that there is an interesting thought process at work there that like does play into Einstein's decision to just chuck the shit out the window is like yeah but you are the center of your universe right. You can just you just because the thing is inevitable doesn't mean that you have to do it. Is an important thing to to consider, right? Like you don't have to be the one, and you know, unfortunately, it is as I said, like a lot of fucking shit, a very not uh, good representation in a movie, right? Um, but it does it does provide a sort of philosophical counterpoint to the idea that like. He just has to keep doing this thing, yeah, um, because it's inevitable, right? Yeah, um, you know, he also represents. You know, he's stuck in the box. He goes up and down all day, right? There's a right. There's a representation of disconnection, alienation from <laughs> from your labor right. to a certain extent, but from other people because you know. Uh, an elevator man is someone who's paid to have uh, interactions with people for 30 seconds at a time over the course of a day, right? Right. Uh, I appreciate that this elevator man has a stool. Uh, <laughs> thinking about thinking about that in the context of modern uh, modern day American uh, service industry folks. Uh, certainly, if the elevator man existed today, they would not get to sit down. Uh, I when I first enc- so the first time I ever encountered a a cashier mm-hmm. sitting down as far as I can remember was in Europe. Yeah. And it was like, "Oh, 
this is just this possibility space exists. <laughs> right, like a person could right. just be sitting down while they do their right. do this like labor that in no way requires them to be standing up. Absolutely. Very specifically, absolutely does not require them to stand. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I, it's it's my own initial distrust of the way this character is being presented is only confirmed by the way Rogue and oh, the editor talk about it in the bonus features. Oh yeah, for sure. No, like you're you you are right. Yeah. I just because I really really wanted like I really yeah. wanted to think about the sort of philosophical elements that are presented like Yeah. It didn't need to be presented in that way, right? right. Like you could just have another person present the like personal like that you you are in fact in control of what you do. Yeah as an argument um, didn't have to come from weird tokenizing bullshit. Right. Like, let's be clear. Like I just wanted to engage with the philosophical thing that is presented in the weird tokenizing bullshit. Tony Lawson, the art, the editor specifically saying that the Indian in the elevator is only there to show us that there's a simpler way, more attuned to nature, more or less a direct quote. Uh, No. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just oh man 100 percent. i am no, uh, it is it is bad it is it is it is so 80s it hurts my brain yeah yeah is honestly what it is because bear in mind like how far away from like the the boys that like i forget what the, they call that the the tear ad about pollution. oh yeah yeah you know what i mean the, like it's the, yeah like we are in a time where everybody is definitely in full swing a hundred percent on board with the idea that in no way are the Braves, the Indians, the Redskins, any of these organizations, in fact, doing a bad thing. But in fact, they are they are they are they're doing a good thing because they are, uh, you know, I forget the freight, the term, like the way they always talk about it. But they're like they're promoting the, you know. Native American culture or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like we're fully in swing with this is all this is just how Native Americans are represented in American media at the time. We're right. we're definitely in on our noble savage bullshit at that time. Yeah, and then and then our Cherokee elevator operator uh enjoying his coffee above the city is great until he starts whooping for some reason. Uh, that, yeah, that. it's well. I mean, they when they when they do their racism, yeah. they're, they're going to do it right. Yeah. Like I don't know. I I think even within the context of what the film has already had that character say, he would not do that. Right. It seems. It seems. Fu- it seems out of character. Yeah. Even by the standards of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it is a weird thing for him to be doing considering what he has literally talked about. Um, I agree completely. I do not understand. I, that character is is highly, from a perspective of like the actual movie, is a highly enigmatic. It yeah. doesn't, yeah. the character just doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. Well, I think we could probably draw this to a close. I do want to call attention to uh, a very early line 
that is one of my favorite lines in the movie. It's so it's almost too okay. clever, uh, but I love it. Um, when the senator walks in to the professor's uh, hotel room, um, and asks him, "Are you feeling accused?" The professor says, "I'm feeling persecuted," and the senator goes, "Are you now?" And the professor says, "Or have I ever been?" Uh, you know, a reference to uh, that. Yeah. Are you now, or have you ever been a communist? Right, uh, right, I, yeah. I did like that I really too. I that thought line. that was very clever. Uh, it was very clever. It was very good. Um, In a movie like this, I'm not bothered by right. by characters being overly clever. <laughs> yes, like, yes. this movie doesn't try to pretend <laughs> right, it it's good. like real life. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, a really wonderful, interesting, weird movie. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I like I liked it. I, I mean, on, on the whole, I thought this, I mean, like, this is going on my, I, like, if I had, like, a nice and a nice and naughty list. Yeah, for like criteria, this would go on the nice yeah, list. I, I think guess. this is this is possibly my favorite rogue movie we've seen. Yeah, I I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't like walkabout all that much. I didn't like bad timing all that much. Uh, I didn't like some of the things that have. I remember thinking walkabout was a interesting movie. Yeah, but I didn't like some of the decisions that Rogue made as a part of his like. Yeah. Walkabout's the one with the, like the una- underage nudity, right? Yes. Or am I wrong? You are correct. Okay. Like, yeah, and I remember that really souring things for yeah. me as like a well, you didn't have to do this, right. you know. Right. Like, yeah, nobody nobody held a gun to your head and made you do this fucked up thing. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, and then what was the one that we that? Well, I, so I I like um the man who fell to earth. Yeah, I you I really, you really like the man who fell to earth. Like it. I. I was less enthused about it, but it's not too bad. Um, well, and yeah. that's one of those ones that's grown on me. Like I was less into it when it happened, and much more into it now. Like it's like certain movies. It's kind of like House, yeah. In that, like it bored a weird hole in my brain and just sits in there going, poke, poke, every like <laughs> you know every so often, and that like cre- it creates this weird effect where like it, it grows on me. Like I don't know that I would ever. I don't know that I necessarily want to watch the man who fell to earth again i might i can't honestly decide if i want to or not you know what i mean whereas house did that enough that i kind of want to watch house again like i just like have this desire to watch that fucking movie again yeah well uh so in the collection right now we've got one more rogue movie don't look now it's my number 745 so four four or five years away uh we will also. I'm glad that you know how far away that is because I have no conception of how far away any of these like spine numbers are. Yeah, I've given up on doing the math in my head because it hurts a little bit, so I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um. Eventually, we'll also see Tony Curtis again with actual Marilyn Monroe. Uh, when we watch Some Like It Hot at spine nine nine and nine fifty. Uh, that's I, I'm that's I'm quite a bit further it. away. Uh, we have a bit of time. Yeah. Um. Four or five years after that, uh, but next week we'll be watching the Makioka Sisters, uh, Konichikawa's nineteen eighty three film. Uh, looking forward to that. Have it, uh, Konichikawa, we've we've loved, uh, so I am uh, interested in seeing another one, whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, presumably, right. presumably it will not be as bleak as the Burmese harp or. Fires on the plane, but I, still interesting. I Maybe. don't know about that, man. Who can say? I I'm just yeah. 
it, I think it may be a different kind of bleak, but yeah. I think it might still be pretty bleak. Uh, yeah, probably true. Just I, I glanced at the, uh, the the Wikipedia synopsis because I wanted to type it in and see. Yeah. I think it might be a little bit more. It still seems like it might be pretty. It might be close. <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyway, yeah. Um, look, it's like I mean, like I'm seeing things like condition grows worse and things like that yeah. as sort of just buzzwords that are popping. I think it's gonna be pretty bleak. Right. Uh, anyway, looking forward to it nonetheless. Thank you so much for listening to Lost Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Hoytari Dory. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Overtari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening. If we can count on one thing, it's the bleakness.